In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. When you think about something that you love to do, perhaps it is a sport or maybe your job or a hobby, this thing, you notice, has a way to energize your spirit, and it appears to make any pain or stress in life go away. The thoughtful observer will realize that this love or this passion shapes the way you approach life. It shapes the way that you view the world. When you are really passionate about a particular love, you plan your days around it. You spend your money on it, and you spend your time on it. You love it so much that you consciously or subconsciously create habits that cultivate your heart in the direction of this love. Because that which you love is that which you serve. In other words, that which you ultimately love above all else can quickly become your God without even realizing it has happened. In today's epistle, we are told that, we, that if we are claiming to be people who love God, that we must express that in love, but not just a general love, but a guided love, a relational love with God and with each other. This is the essence of what we are called to do each Sunday in the liturgy, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And this is why we come back week after week in the liturgy to shape our loves towards God. But we need to be careful because there are certain loves and certain desires that push us over the edge. St. Augustine wrote that human beings are essentially lovers. We have desires and our loves can become disordered very quickly if we are not paying attention, if we are not mindful to what we love. When our loves become disordered, we can turn the love of a good thing, of a very good thing, into an idol, and this becomes sin. In fact, most sins are very subtle. They are good things that we take, and we turn them into ultimate things. An easy example is our children, loving our children which is definitely something you should do. I don't want you to think I'm saying don't love your children, but loving your children is one of these really good things that you can do and you can turn it into sin. If you begin to obsess about your children in an unhealthy way, organize your entire life around your children to the neglect of yourself, and setting up undue pressure upon your children and yourself for perceived successes and failures, well, you have turned your children into idols, and this doesn't help them, and it doesn't help you, and it's not love. There is something that we deal with almost every day that very easily turns our hearts towards idolatry, and that is money. As 1 Timothy tells us, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is a good and necessary thing. 
but it can very easily turn into an unhealthy desire. Which brings us to our gospel today, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Probably one of the most famous parables, even if you've never picked up a Bible, you know about the rich man and Lazarus. We should notice first that in the narrative, the rich man is nameless. He has no name, but we know he's a glutton. He's like a man that has champagne for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He wears the best clothes all the time because, you see, he doesn't even own casual clothes. He is a narcissist of the highest rank, both in this life and you'll see in the life to come. Yet, outside of his heavily guarded palace sits a very poor man that he doesn't even notice because, you see, he is too fixated on himself, planning the next dinner party and seeing what he'll drink for dinner that night. This poor man has a name, Lazarus, and he is full of sores. Why does it say he's full of sores? This is a nod to the onlooking Pharisees who are among you know, the audience here for Jesus. Sores, he was ritually unclean. Not only was he poor, but he was ritually unclean. And dogs, who were also unclean, come and lick his sores. Then abruptly we get a shift to the afterlife. Lazarus is carried by the angels up to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man, although he was well taken care of, with satisfying meals and all he could ever want, also dies, which is a note to us that we're all going to die. And he wakes up in hell. He sees Lazarus afar off with Abraham, and as Robert Capone puts it, he cries out for Abraham to have pity on him, and if he could send Lazarus over with a Campari and soda to take the curse off the heat. Even in hell, the rich man loves himself first. He has no remorse, no regrets, and he falls back into his old habits. He is bossing around Lazarus as if Lazarus is one of his lackeys. This doesn't work, so he attempts to tell Abraham what to do. Uh, excuse me, Abraham, can you come and dip your finger in the water to cool my tongue? Please? Abraham stops and interrupts him, and he says, In your lifetime, you had all that you could ever want, and Lazarus was up to his eyeballs in misery, and now the gulf is too great that you cannot cross. The rich man gives up, but not without an attempt to give one last order. He wants Lazarus to do some errands for him. He says, Abraham, can you have Lazarus go to my family and warn them so they do not end up like me? But then Abraham says, no, your family has all that they need. They have the law and the prophets. They know what they need to do. Well, this parable makes us uncomfortable, and it should. If it doesn't, then we need to recheck things. But is this simply a reversal story that says if we behave one way in this life is just flipped in the other? No, that's what creates bumper sticker theology, such as, live well, go to hell. Uh, that's not what it's saying. Um, if only the Bible were, were so simple. There's also a false idea that the rich man's sin was simply being rich. But again, the Bible is not that simple. For those of us studying Genesis on Thursday morning, and you're all welcome to come to our Genesis Bible study. You notice that Abraham was extremely wealthy. The Bible speaks of him as being blessed and prosperous. 
and this is just not referring to spiritual blessings. He had a fortune in livestock and cattle, as did Isaac and Jacob. Other godly figures who were wealthy include Solomon, Esther, and Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his own tomb for Jesus' body. I'm pointing to the icon that has Joseph uh, on the cross and given his tomb for Jesus. So what is Jesus telling us in this parable? And how does it relate to love? How does it relate to our deepest desires? Jesus is reminding us that in the economics of the kingdom of God, salvation does not come through perfection. Salvation does not come by being good. Salvation does not come through dying with the most toys. Rather, salvation comes through failure, through recognizing that we do not have it all figured out. This is what the Pharisees, who were among the audience of the parables, did not understand. They were convinced they had God figured out, that they had the law figured out, and because of this, they were very proud of themselves. They probably identified more with the rich man than with the poor man. They only noticed the poor when they saw them not living up to their full potential. But Jesus is the opposite of the rich man. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is a friend of the poor, and through his death, through the death of Jesus, which seems like a failure, we find our salvation. We live like the rich man when we focus our lives around ourselves at the expense of others. In other words, our love or our loves and our passions become disoriented. When we do this, we do not notice anyone else's pain around us, even if they are in our own family, right in front of us, or laying at our gate. This is why we must habituate ourselves towards loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. One of the goals of the life of prayer is to cultivate a mindfulness of what we take in, what we listen to, what we read, and how that shapes us. In other words, how that forms us. This is what spiritual formation is. Learning what forms you in all areas of life. Not just the times when you think you're being spiritual. Spiritual maturity is becoming aware of how our habits shape us. This was one of the great sins of the rich man. He was too focused on himself to realize how his habits were shaping him. And we can know our habits and how they shape us if we just take a brief audit of how we spend our time and money. It is only through this mindfulness that we can start to put on the mind of Christ and turn our hearts towards the things of God so that we can become people who really love our neighbors because we know deep down in our heart of hearts that it is God who loved us first. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.